Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Today, we'd like to welcome Professor Lisa B. Thompson to the Race and Democracy podcast. Uh, Dr. Thompson is a professor of African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, she's the author of Beyond the Black Lady, Sexuality, and the New African-American Middle Class. And her most recent book is Underground, Monroe, and the Mamalogs, three plays that have just been released by Northwestern University Press, um, and really three very, very exciting uh, plays that speak to this current moment in many different ways. Uh, so Lisa, welcome. I'm excited about our conversation today. Thank you so much, Dr. Joseph. It's so wonderful to be talking to your audience and to be in conversation with you finally, um, formally and in public. So this is fantastic. You know, I saw one of these plays, um, uh, Monroe, and I guess we'll start there and then go to Underground and the Mamalogs. Uh, what's the inspiration, first of all, for you, you know, Black woman, um, very well known, and, you know, in a lot of ways, your career has just risen, risen um, very, very steadily, your notoriety, uh, both in Austin, but just nationally. What's the inspiration for you being um, a playwright and an academic? Thank you for asking that. It's really important for me, identify as an artist scholar. I believe that my scholarship informs my artistry and my artistry informs my scholarship, and they both inform my teaching. Looking back now, I can see the seeds, really, even as an undergraduate, I would have a course, for instance, I, I tweeted this last weekend because Gail Jones has a new novel coming out and people are excited about that. And I, this was articles about people that no, no one knows who she is. And I'm like, well, I was lucky enough to have Richard Yarbrough as a professor for my senior seminar in the English department at UCLA. And he taught one of her books. And my idea as an undergraduate was to, for my presentation, of the, is to take one of the sections of the, of the book and create a short play with my scene of the, the partner and forces for young woman to work with me on this. And looking back now, I'm like, you know, I was just destined to bring these two things together and continue to do that. And the first play I wrote was a one woman's story, one woman show called Dread Times, One Sister's Hair. And it was about my journey from pigtails to at the, po at the point in my life, I had dreadlocks or uh, locks and um, wanted to tell the story of what black women and beauty. And, and, and I realized at that point, did it for the inner city cultural centers talent fest and did really well. But I realized at that point I was too lazy to, to be a completely be an artist, well, a performer at least, and that I would, I liked better writing it and watching other people who were in great shape that want to, you know, do it again from the top three or four times. Um, and I consider instead the classroom to be my stage. So when I bring, um, talk about, uh, I have a course in the black on a class, I have a course called Rethinking Blackness, that there I get to be my theatrical self and I only have to do it once <laughs> instead of having to do it, you know, seven days a week uh, for three years or something like that, like these amazing uh, artists, um, play, um, actors do. So I also began doing storytelling as a child with my brother. Um, San Francisco, a lot of people think California is all hot and wonderful, but it's actually really cold in San Francisco a lot, especially in the summer. So we spent time at home um, making up stories. We called them shows. Um, didn't realize that there was a whole theater world, so our mom started taking us to see the theater. And I guess I really fell in love with the possibility of poetry and uh, performance when um, Sean Gates for Colored Girls made its way to um, 
to um, our consciousness when I was a, a young woman, a uh, young child, really, m- middle school, and really fell in love with her work. So I guess for me, um, storytelling is the best way to get people to really embrace and absorb absorb the stories and the history um, that's so important for us to understand and, 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 the, and the complex and the human part elements around all of that. What was the inspiration for these three plays? And let's start with uh, Monroe. So Monroe, what is Monroe about and what's the inspiration behind it? Thank you for asking that. Actually, it's a, a play that has had its birth as a graduate student at Stanford. I took a, my one playwriting class was with Sheree Moraga, um, the author, uh, co-author of this bridge called My Back with Gloria Anzadua. And she, in that course, she had us um, do a prompt one day. Uh, the prompt was, this is how I pray. And out of that, I just started thinking about, uh, I grew up in a Baptist, um, the great grandfather was a Baptist minister who actually um, was the founding um, minister for True Vine Baptist Church in Monroe, Louisiana. And, um, but I was also fascinated by Catholicism because it was such a different kind of expression of faith. And at that point, um, I was in school and I, um, out of that wrote this monologue about this young woman and it grew from there. Um, and it's funny, it's a little tale about that is that the, in, in, um, part of the class was that you had to actually direct your own stage reading. So I ended up, um, casting Meta Jones, I don't know if you know her, scholar at UNC, and um, this undergrad and his girlfriend, and the undergrad is still in K. Brown, and Ryan Bath, who's now his wife, um, and um, I knew <laughs> that great. moment, <laughs> I knew then. Sterling, that, Sterling K. Brown, who's the Emmy Award winning actor for This Is Us, and has done so much extraordinary work, yes. Yes, so, and I knew from that moment, though, because like, you know, at that point, he was just annoying undergraduate. Those, yeah, okay, sure, Sterling. And then I saw him perform in, in my reading. I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to be a star. I knew then. I, uh, I told some people that. I remember that. So, um, but it came out so of you me. Start, mm-hmm. you, you start with Monroe. You say you dedicate it to the memory of George Bolden, an illiterate Black man accused of writing a lewd note to a white woman who was lynched near Monroe, Louisiana, on April 30th, 1919. And talk about the significance, because uh, in Warmth of uh, Other Sons, Isabel Wilkerson tracks uh, Monroe, Louisiana, as one of the tributaries to California, to Los Angeles, in terms of the Great Migration. So talk about the significance of setting it in Monroe, Louisiana. Thank you for asking that, too. Um, So I was wondering, and my family didn't talk much about it, why they ended up in California. Everyone else went to well, these black folks went to Chicago and to New York and other other places that are more famous along the um, the whole Great Migration. And my family said no, California, and I, I and they didn't really um, much explain that. So I had to figure out my own reading around that. And I said it around um, a lynching. I remember him talking about lynchings during a Sunday breakfast. Something would you know would be a small. Uh, think they would mention, but not to go. To, you didn't ask me many questions at that point in, in time. My parents would have a conversation. You would just listen. And when I when it was brought um, to the awesome playhouse, I started um, developing it, developing it, and thinking about it more, and started doing research. And at that time was the beginning of of the um, monument to lynching that um, Brian Stevenson has now put into the world. And there was a lot more discussions about. Washita Paris is where Monroe is located. And I found out where my gentle, gentle mother and really, really sweet uncles were from, one of the most violent places in the country um, in terms of lynchings. It's number five um, 
historically. And it just blew my mind. And of course, this is being staged now that, that they've all passed um, away. Um, but they didn't, it just was astounding to me. The innocence my mother had was very much reflected in the character, Cherry. Um, she was a very, a kind of person who would come back to the store and say, you gave me too much change. Mm-hmm. Um, I could start crying talking about her. Uh, my mother was a, um, just a, uh, too many ways to me, too good for the world she was born into and clearly too good for that. But, the, but so my family made the migration. My mother was born in Monroe, again, raised by my, uh, uh, and that great grandfather who, um, the true Vine Baptist Church is still standing with his name on it. And then my father was from Lake Charles and they met in the Bay Area. So I wanted to also put on the map a way that I did not see in the world, um, Black California and the Bay Area in particular. And I'm still hoping to do more of that. So that's where Monroe comes from that and imagining what happens to a family. One, what happens to a family after a family member has been lynched? And also um, what happens to the black man that cut down his friend? Mm-hmm. I mean, because so somebody had to cut them down and, and, and bury them. I mean, what was that? And I just couldn't imagine this. So it's just really bringing my imagination to those, those details. Um, and... Um, when uh, Underground, which was the, f- the first play that I had done in Austin, comes out of thinking about um, the real questions we have that are coming to the fore now. People are saying, oh, my God, it's, you know, it's two on the nose. I mean, after it was done in Austin, it went on board and everything, but you could not leave because people, I think it was just two on the nose <laughs> in some ways for people. Like, so basically it's asking us to consider what, how are we going to have a revolution? Is it going to be through voting? Is it going to be through um, black middle class volunteering and going, you know, back to the community and help helping people in these really profound ways. But and then the other possibility is armed insurrection. So that's the um, the tension that's going on in the debate between. Yeah, these two and, and I'd love to talk about that because the characters Mason and Dix, um, <laughs> or, or or Dix oh, okay. and Kyle. Yes, yes. Um, when when we think about them, they were college friends in 1988, and there's. Um, an incident of sort of revolutionary violence that happens there that comes back to haunt Mason in, in Albany, New York. But throughout the dialogue and the scenes that you write between them, one, I think there's aspects of toxic masculinity within the Black bourgeoisie that you really deal with. And then you also deal with um, the litany of sort of reading and studying that they had done. You know, you talk about... Um, Huey P. Newton and just James Baldwin and and the library that Mason has. And Kyle is, uh, you sort of have him as this professional race hustler, but you're saying it <laughs> tongue in cheek because, I mean, he, he really is for the people. But at the same time, they talk about um, doing a show and you, you write that um, there'd be plenty of Black public intellectuals <laughs> who are ready to go on with their version of what's going to save uh, the black community while embellishing their own brand. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that because I thought that was very, very interesting. I thought it was very tongue in cheek and satirical at times, but also biting in terms of realism that part of um, where we're at now, including in 2020 after the massive uprisings after George Floyd is, um, and I've taught, I teach my students this too, that in a neoliberal capitalist society, when you try to fight against oppression there is a market for that as well. Mm-hmm. And we all have to come to terms with that. Part of what Black Studies is, it is anti-racism. It is anti-oppression. But increasingly, 
in the 1960s, but even more so now in 2020, there is a market for that. There is a value for that, yes. including people like Brian Stevenson, who I very much mm-hmm. admire, mm-hmm. Ava DuVernay, who I very yes. much admire. But there's a market, there's a commodity. And I'm not saying they invented the market, no. but we're all in it. Yes. So all of us who are feminists, all mm-hmm. of us who are talking about intersectional justice, who are Black radicalism, Martin, Malcolm, Asada, there is a market. We're getting checks from universities. Yes. We're yes. getting checks from um, corporate America. At times, we're getting donors. We're getting all kinds of stuff. So I thought it was very interesting in terms of Mason and Kyle, the the, the back and forth between them. <laughs> I thought it was extraordinary. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm and, and I'm part of that too, right? And, I mean, the everybody I'm getting all these uh, <laughs> calls and texts and emails like, oh, you know, we want something. And what I feel in this moment is an extraordinary. Um, it's almost being like we're being devoured, right? We, you know, we, we, and it's like how we eat. We, we're gluttons in America. We, you know, we overeat. We're gluttony. So now we're glutton. We don't like feed ourselves with all the. We want all the, 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 the what was it, Abraham Kahindi, you know, come on, you know, give us the beat down about uh, how bad we've been. And we'll, oh, Ibram Kendi, yeah, that's yes, one of my, yes, my yes. mentees. Yeah. Yes. yes, and it feels, it, but it feels like, and we all know, if we're honest with ourselves, at some point they're going to get their fill. And then we're yes. back on the shelf. Yes. So the work I've been doing is, you know, it's a, you know, a long time, you know, I mean, my first place, single by female, um, it was produced and was a grad student, you know, so this is 21 years ago. And um, I've watched the ebb and flow. So part of it, the, 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 the underground is the, the guilt of the black middle class, because I'm watching people either be unemployed or doing jobs that I call them, you know, essential workers. I was like, really? Are they essential? Are they expendable workers? Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm getting my, I'm getting my Amazon orders. I'm getting my, you know, curbside delivery. Um, and, right, and, you know, and but I'm, but I'm gonna. Yeah, but I'm all the same time. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm down for the people, and um, you know, it's it's interesting um, to to have to confront those things to to, to go in two generations from the grandmother, the house cleaner, to having a house cleaner. Well, and you know what? I one of the things I think is really remarkable about underground, really, all of your writing. Um, how historically specific it is, because you mentioned they have a dialogue about reparations. Mm-hmm. They mentioned Ta-Nehisi Coates. But I thought what was so extraordinary is that you set the play in a restored brownstone that was built in 1855 that was a way station in the Underground Railroad. And I also thought about the meta of the fact that Coates, who's a best-selling author, and we're not trying to um, get on him, but there was a point where he bought mm-hmm. this million-dollar yes. brownstone, yes. but then he his family moved out because they had leaked the address right. of the, the brownstone, yes. right? But so it's so it's so I think one of this it's so interesting to have this conversation with you because you're a public intellectual, you're you know a star, superstar, playwright, academic, scholar, feminist, a uh, public intellectual, just somebody who's a big deal, and in a lot of ways. What Black liberation movements have done for people like you and us mm-hmm. is really provided us a platform where the goal was something else. The goal yes. was liberation. The right. goal was, you know, the beloved community, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. Yes. But what we've gotten as a way station is that some mm. of us have done real, real well. And I'm not even saying people are selling out. Not no. at all. Not at We're all. Stuck. We're stuck. People, yeah. people are personally sincere. They have political integrity. 
people are doing all kinds of investment and donation. But I thought it was very interesting with with uh, Mason the fact that he's got this multi million dollar brownstone, but then also Kyle is doing really well too. So on some levels, they both have carved out a space where they're able to do really really well within a. A, a capitalist economy, whether we say racial capitalism or plantation capitalism, mm. where most Black people are not doing well. So I want to yes. talk about that. And how, I can tell from your writing, reading you as a playwright, that you you wrestle with this yourself, you know? Absolutely. I mean, that person is me, the woman that's gone from, you know, the grandmother that did the house cleaning to having a house cleaner. That's something that, you know, that I... Uh, but then it's saying, and, and, and you know, what does that mean? And I got to the point where during the during this period of COVID and the, the um, pandemic is that I'm realizing I'm doing a lot more things, of course, my, you know, myself and thinking, what if we slow down enough so everybody took care of their own stuff? And that's a really my ideal life for me is that, is that where everyone has enough time to grow some fruit and grow some um vegetables in their gardens, which a lot of us have been doing. And now it's become the chic thing to post on Instagram, all the black intellectuals posting their first time um, gardening. And, um, but at the same time, that was what my great grandfather did. He had a big orchard and all that land is lost. Um, And to think about, um, to to wrestle with this, what, you know, what's the point of all this, right? Um, and um, the mama logs gets at this too, what, you know, especially as a parent. Right now, I'm trying to figure out how to deal with um, the opening of school for my child, um, and um, what's our responsibilities to the who's going to be the front lines of that. So yes, it's something I wrestle with, and I see my friends wrestling with, and I have you know good friends who are like you know uh, off to their second homes right now. <laughs> These are black folks, right? You know, because like, it's just easier right now in the vineyard, you know. Um, and um, but it's true, and um, they've earned those things. Um, and but doesn't mean many of us are also the ones that families turn to for help with applying to college and w- literally the application to helping to fund it, right? Um, so black middle class is a very curious thing. I think this is fascinating to me because I hadn't met, um, I didn't really meet black folks that were. Um, who had grandparents that went to college until I got to the university as an undergraduate and was really fascinated by by that. A, a, a floor mate who whose mother came to visit and sent a thank you note, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Never <laughs> <laughs> tripped me out, black black, black person, and um, that they grew up in the same city, and she had done a cotillion. I never heard of any of that stuff, right? Um, so um, that's what's fascinating to me is to is to see this whole group of black people that have exist that existed. Um, among, uh, in the same city that I lived in and two things come up for me. One is that, um, it's fascinating to, to see this whole world they grew up in that I did not. The other is like, here I was this bright girl and you didn't come take care of me or check on me or see if I was, and you didn't know I existed that you could have, could I, how could you make my path easier? Absolutely. I want to, I want to talk about, um, Mamalogs uh, as as a segue because you you written that as a as a love letter to the single black women everywhere but certainly the characters that you have um, especially um, Tasha uh, and um, 
uh, Beverly, you know, one is a pediatrician, the other, um, uh, or Lauren, Tasha and Lauren, one of one is a pediatrician, mm-hmm. uh, and the other is a professor. Um, and this is a great story, very very funny as well about motherhood, um, gentrification. Uh, you talk about being the only black child on the playground when one goes further out west. Uh, you talk about the mother love that happens uh, when you when you meet this mother, and it could be a white mother, but then the breakups that can happen <laughs> over over race and and uh, you know the, the Trump era. So um, yeah, let's talk about the monologues and even the idea of birth and black women and having birth, some being widowed, some divorced and split up. Some of the mothers um, had their first child at 40. You know, I thought it was yes. really, really remarkable, excellent dialogue. Thank you so much. It's um, definitely something that I, that I wrote to keep myself from going insane. Um, first, as a, a, a first-time mother at 40 myself, um, I was um, an anomaly in, 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 in many parts of my community. And I think that the black middle class single mom is an anomaly in so many ways. So you know you're um, in these class. So you're at the you know the fancy school, but you don't have a partner. So people you know so don't know how to deal with you. You're um, in the black church, but you don't have a husband. So where to do with you? But you're, but you're proud of you because you're professionally somebody we we, we 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 like. You know, it's like you don't really fit in anywhere. And uh, in the course of, my, of being a parent, I've um, I was partnered and then I'm no longer a partner. And so this, um, so I experienced it both as, you know, well, a partner black woman, uh, what it's like to be pregnant in, in a black woman period. And just that's a kind of an interesting moment in how the world treats you. Um, and then um, being single kind of navigating um, I, our own class issues too. My, my favorite part of that um, story about um, really is, is not just the, Dealing with the white parents and the racism at the schools, but but also uh, one's own class stuff. When she goes and hangs out in the East Side soccer field and asks about where to get the shoes, and they're like, "Yeah, go to the you know where that Walmart is." And then she's like, "Yeah, go to the the Goodwill next to that Walmart." <laughs> so it's just like, oh, and you realize it's not just for your kids that they need the class diversity in their lives. It's also your the, the mother herself. Um, so I do feel like there's a way which the church has about black single mothers. And I wanted to kind of explode that by thinking about um, single mothers who have a certain kind of class uh, privilege and, and um, cultural capital and how they move through the world. And for, for me, it's been important for me to um, intervene um, in ways that disrupt things at the PTA. I, I, I joke around. I said, by the time my son's been at a school two years, for two years, the office staff sees me coming and turns the lights off. <laughs> it's like, she's coming. Oh my God. <laughs> no, that's I, great. You, you know, on, you, you write at one point about um, uh, being with your son on the playground um, mm-hmm. and around with, with some white mothers and uh, yes, uh, yes. You know, Lululemon duds, Birkenstocks, two carat diamond studs, a stylish backpack, uh, and organic snacks. Um, and they say, what's her story? I haven't seen you before. So are you new around here? Oh. And you say, I've been spotted. And they see your son and say, wow, he's quite a swimmer. Thanks. How old is he? Six. Wow. So big guy. Are you going to be a football player, a basketball player? And the child says, no, I'm going to be a physicist. 
And they say, you don't say, well, good for you. Um, And then when um, the nannies spot you and that you're not taking care of a white child, Mm -hmm. uh, they just can't believe it. So there's all these different um, hurts uh, and Mm -hmm. and, uh, marginalizations. It's basically racism. Sometimes people call it microaggressions, but these are racist uh, traumas that aren't as big as um, lynching and violence, Mm -hmm. but they are a kind of violence against the soul and the spirit. Um, and sort of rein- reinforce the caste system in the United States. You know, like you're not supposed to be here. Yes. Um, so I thought that was very, very um, interesting. And you had you had a line here that really um, stuck with me where when Lauren says um, something hits the news and she says something that pushes you off the integration tightrope. I wanted mm-hmm. you to talk about that, the integration tightrope. Oh, my tight God. Rope. We've been pushed off really, really violently this um, this spring and um, I have to be honest, you know, so I couldn't talk to some of my friends that are not black. And I just was like, I just need, I need, some, I need a minute. Because um, um, not all of them, because some of them, they, the ones that didn't, didn't need me to do a certain service in this moment, are the ones I could talk to, because we already, because they, cause they, they um, get it. And, and well, one of them is uh, Sonnet Redman, who's at University of, uh, University of Washington, Seattle, who does black study. So she is, you know, she understands her positionality and there's no thing. Um, but some were just, and you know, don't call me about George Floyd because you didn't call me about Trayvon. Mm-hmm. You didn't call me about Tamir. You didn't call me about any, I mean, don't, I've been grieving all my life. So the, the ones that could call me, the ones that called me then, you know, that they were there with me through all, that were cl- cl- clear about um, racial uh, issues. Uh, I, hate that, I hate that term, which is just racial violence through the, throughout our, all, our whole friendship. And I guess for me, 2016 was a moment when I rolled up at my son's school, which is predominantly white schools, you know, and the parents looked at me. I said, talk to your kids. Don't talk to me. Talk to your family. Do we play your position. That's for you to do. Do your work. I'm doing my work. Do your work. Don't come looking at me. Talk to your and people. Parents were like, "Oh my God!" You know, I've, I was always that was fucking mom, but now it's like it was just really. There's no filter. I'm you know, and that's continued since then because I, I just I can't. I don't have to. And then some of them I said to me, said to them, because um, in the fifth grade at that time, I'm looking at these parents and I'm like, "You consider yourself my friend. You consider your child my child's friend." And you have noticed there's no black ch- girl in your kid's class from kindergarten to fifth grade because the school had two black boys in that grade, and that's all. So your child's never been in the same classroom with a black girl her, their entire life, and you're looking at me, and you're shocked because you didn't even notice. I'm that black girl that would have been in that class. Mm-hmm. So for, you know, you have work to do, and it's not my job to do that work, but I'm pointing out to you and go, you know, bless you. As I've learned to say now that I live in the South, bless your heart. Um, so, but the integration tightrope is real. Um, and, um, my expectations that if you're going to continue to be in a relationship with me is to, um, do your work and, and, and it's not for me to do that. I do this for a living. I get paid to do certain things as a friend. Um, if you're really a friend, it's like, it's like, I, cause I have friends who are differently able. It's not my job, their job to teach me about what it's like to be, uh, have, to, to have visual impairment. It's not their job to teach me about autism, not their job to teach me about any of those things. And those are pe- people in my life that are part of all, all that. And so it's my job to learn if I care about you. 
I hate to do that, you know, it's a false you know, equivalency or, you know, the, the, the crisis of analogy trying to compare these kind of things with race stuff. But just no matter what it is, it's my job as a caring person in your life. So, yeah, it's a type of we've fallen off of it and really has been difficult for me to, um, you, know, but I could, you know, to do that interaction you know i'm so sorry what can i like they want to bring me food it's like it's like it's it's a it's a bizarre it's like okay um it, it just you, feels like they're in a baby they're babies when it comes to race and it, it just it, it's a, for us you know you and i people that do this for a living it's really even more uh difficult to, to to breach that chasm you write we yes we are parenting while black and living in the age of anxiety in light of what's happened with um George Floyd, and really, um, this is in the monologues, but really just in our popular culture, what do you think is going to emerge uh, because of the fact, like you said, this idea of aspects of Black pain being devoured um, during this moral and political reckoning about racial justice, about Black dignity and citizenship in 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic massive Black unemployment, mass incarceration, just so much pain and suffering, but so much, um, in a sense, attention to that pain and suffering. Uh, not yet in a policy way. In a policy way, we've had New York City say they're going to take a billion dollars from policing and put it in communities. Austin, our own city, mm-hmm. um, virtually you know, nothing. Um, LA, $150 million. Um, but certainly we've seen people devouring anti-racist books. Ibram Kendi, who's a friend, Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility, has sold a million copies this year alone. Um, so what do you say when you say parenting while Black in this age of anxiety? But what do you, what, what do you hope happens at this, this moment, especially because your plays all deal with um, racism, I won't even just say race, mm-hmm. but certainly the Black experience within the context of racism and white supremacy, um, but also the Black, I would say upper middle class, not even middle class, because these mm-hmm. are folks um, like us mm-hmm. who um, they might not have wealth, but they have upper middle incomes relative to the mm-hmm. rest of the Black community, especially. Absolutely. Yeah. One one of them is, I'm wondering, and of course, this pipe you know, my own personal uh, most pressing concern is the mental and emotional health of Black children in this moment. That's really where I'm most um, concerned with, um, from the the, you know, the 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 very young to especially those who are teens, because of their one notion of, of the world is more expansive and complex than the younger children, but also they know that the timeline between where they are in the world and where they're heading into adulthood and what that may mean. Um, I'm worried about them being fearful and feeling um, disempowered um, and traumatized um, and wondering how we're going to, to, how we're going to meet that need because what's always struck me, because I lived in in LA for over 10 years. I did my, um, my BA and my MA and at UCLA, and during that time, was a lot going on in terms of the way in which the LAPD was a uh, insane force of violence against Black folks. And I was there during the uprising slash riots. Um, funny enough, I was moving that weekend. This is another story. <laughs> um, but just what 
um, I'm always struck by when you have, whether it's drive-bys or uprisings, there's never talk about the army of or team of mental health professionals going into our communities. And I tweeted recently about there's not enough black therapists that exist for all the to, to, help, to help process the trauma and pain that we have experienced and continue to experience. And um, that's just to me, what I, I, I brought that to my attention and what made me want to post that is thinking about the young girl, I think she's 17 years old, who filmed Mr. Floyd's murder. Has anyone sent her therapy? Is she being, who's taking care of her beyond her family? She should be protected by, because we also know what's happened to everybody who's filmed any of these um, uh, highly publicized murders. They've all been, in some way, um, the state has crushed them. So I'm thinking with this poor, this is a child. I, I mean, I, I, I guess I tried to cry thinking about her. I mean, just what are we doing to protect her? And I remember poor Trayvon Martin's friend who had to testify with they with the you know how the the public uh, attacked her. Um, what are we doing to protect the mental and emotional health support that um, for this next generation? Um, and thinking about uh, and and it goes back ties right back to Monroe and my mother Herbert Dean L. Thompson. Um, who grew up to be this really sweet person and, and, and growing up in one of the most violent places <laughs> in the U.S. Um, I, I, it's just stunning to me. Um, and um, I'm also grateful to her and uh, for raising her children to really believe we could be anything. Um, someone who did never finish college, uh, got close, um, that's one of the sad things for me. I think she was like 20 units shy, went back to school at San Francisco State. Um, but because of her constant desire for education and to bring, um, give us as many opportunities as possible to take advantage of everything that was, that was in San Francisco uh, for us, um, raised these four children to, to, to go out into the world. And now, and then I was the first one to get a graduate degree. And then I have two nieces um, with PhDs. Um, to, to, to be, uh, and I, I lay that all at, at her feet, uh, all of that. Um, but yeah, so for me, it's my personal story has been a story of class, class ascension, which is why I'm fascinated with the black middle class in this way. Um, because it's interesting to, to enter in a place that I never feel completely welcome. Um, because I'm very proud of my working class roots. Um, but I'm also clear too, from friends that I grew up with who say, Oh, you're not, you don't, but you weren't like working class like we were. Your dad lived in your house. Your parents were married. You had a house, not an apartment. You guys had a car, didn't take the bus. Your great grandfather had a church, right? So it's all relative too. And I, and that's been really good to keep me, keep me grounded and, and humble. But um, I definitely want a world where everybody has enough of what they need to be human and safe. And um, this, uh, and that's, that's what really what Underground really is about. It's like, really, if we unpack this and walk it all the way out, is it really possible for the way this country is for it to stand, for it to, um, that it's meant to, it's doing exactly what it's meant to do. Um, and uh, it's not pretty. Sorry. All right. My final question um, 
what do you feel that this moment, uh, in what ways is it amplifying the work of Black, especially Black female voices like yourself? And I'm thinking here, um, you know, we we uh, know that there have always been Black female playwrights, but even before the George Floyd moment, we were noticing in 2019 that the New York Times and the New Yorker and some of the big tastemakers were talking about Black women playwrights in the theater, Black uh, women um, as artists, as, as, as intellectuals, as thought leaders. Uh, but I'm thinking specifically um, in terms of theaters, uh, theater and, and, and plays. And now, since this moment, the demand for that is just increasing. So what do you think the, do you find hope in that, that uh, people are looking towards um, Black female voices? Um, we see that in the leadership of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we see that on a, a number of different levels that, you know, people are looking uh, towards Black women in this moment in a way that historically they've never been given this kind of visibility, even as they've been leaders and architects uh, and workers um, within that movement. But does that give you hope? It does give me some hope. I mean, it feels like people like Dominique Morisot, whose excellent work, including her play about the School to Prison Pipeline and Andrew Smith and others, it's been a a wonderful time. I just want to do an important plug I want to make um, to, I think Black cultural studies, I mean, Black studies in general has a theater problem though. Um, there is a, a list that came out, uh, Schoenberg just did, um, Essential Reading for Black Liberation brought to you by the Schoenberg Center. It's, it's been published in Hyperallergic and um, there are three plays on a list of 100 texts. And it's just devastating to me to think, you know, you, you, you could create a list like this and not have Sean Gay on it and not have, uh, I'm pretty sure if, I, if, I'm, if I'm missing something, I'm, I'm wrong. I think I went over it pretty well. Um, you, you have three important texts, August Wilson, you have Lorraine Hansberry and Lynn Hodge's, um, uh, one of Lynn Hodge's plays. But there's so many more Black playwrights um, whose voices should be heard and recognized as part of the Black literary tradition. Um, we're missing um, important work by um, Alice Childress and work by Baraka. I mean, there's just so many um, Black theater makers. And people are, right now, because we don't have theater um, in the stages, there's readings happening. But also, a lot of people don't understand, your TV, what you're streaming is so good because there's so many Black screenwriters writing and also Black playwrights who are writing for television. I just wanted to, to, to say that in this crazy moment we're in, I am so happy to see more Black gay and lesbian theater makers have their work um, being produced and seen. And to, again, to, once again, to diversify our notions of what Blackness is uh, across class and race and sexuality and gender um, and those who are non-binary as well. It's just great to see us doing that. I just want us to be spend a little bit more time as you make these lists to think about, to make sure we consider uh, all the theatrical work um, that has been done and has shaped the conversation um, about Black life, particularly as a moment during the 60s, we had the Black arts movement, which was such a, the sister of the Black power movement. And we right now uh, don't have that being articulated, but it's definitely there where we have the Black artists, whether it's film, TV, fiction, poetry, 
um, speaking to this moment. And that's what's keeping me fed and joyful. All right. So let's not forget our Black playwrights. And we've been talking to one of the extraordinary contemporary playwrights, Professor Lisa B. Thompson, who is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies. Her latest book is Underground Monroe and the Mamalogs, Three Plays, which everyone should purchase immediately. She's also the author of Beyond the Black Lady, Sexuality, and the New African-American Middle Class, uh, and really a, a vibrant public intellectual in Austin and nationally and globally in our own right. So thank you, Lisa, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Penel. This has been such a pleasure. I'm, I want to go finish my next book so I can have a, another conversation with you. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. This was an extraordinary book. It's really, truly brilliant and, and so funny and well done. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.